Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. The story of Violette Nozier is shocking, a scandalous affair. And yet, as Sarah Maza points out in her excellent new biography entitled Violette Nozier, A Story of Murder in 1930s Paris, through this story, there is much to be learned about the lives of middle and working class Parisians in the 20s and 30s, lives that are so often overshadowed by the two world wars. Today, I'm talking with Sarah about Violette Nozier and her new book, which is now out in paperback. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, Yes. Well, I'm a historian of France. I have taught at Northwestern University for about 30 years. And um, I have very deep connections with France because I actually grew up there. My parents were expatriates. My dad ran a uh, school for American students in the south of France in Aix-en-Provence, and we moved there when I was five. And I uh, did most of my schooling there. I went to kindergarten, elementary school, middle school, lycée, and even did my undergraduate degree there. And then I moved to the States. And actually, um, all of my family, who are Americans, still live in France. So I have this uh, funny bicultural background. And professionally, I am. Uh, I, I started out as a historian of 18th century France. So I worked on the period um, before... Uh, the French Revolution, and um, I did one book that straddled the period of the French Revolution into the 19th century. And then after I'd been in that um, subject for a while, in that uh, chronological frame for a while, I decided that I needed to, um, a little bit of a change, and I started working on the interwar period. So that's the background to uh, the book. I teach at Northwestern. I teach quite a bit of different things, but my core teaching is in the history of France from the 18th century to the present. And I'm somebody who's interested, as um, the book sort of suggests, uh, in issues of uh, society and culture and ideas. So how did you come across the story of Violette? Um I came across her story in the most um, uh, straightforward way. The way this book came about was that I had a very vague set of questions uh, that I started out researching. I went to Paris for a year. I had uh, been chair of my department for three years, and uh, as a reward for good behavior, I got a sabbatical. And fortunately, my family was able to come. And so I went over to Paris, and I was um, thinking, well, I would work on crime in the interwar period. It just seemed to me that this, there, there is this all of this aura of 
um, kind of uh, darkness and and uh, anxiety and this kind of noir feel about the period. And I thought, okay, well, I've always been interested in crime, so I'm going to, um, in crimes in history and what they can tell us about societies. So I started reading broadly. And I knew there were some a few salient crimes, but actually back in the States, I hadn't been able to, I'd heard the name of Violette Nozier, and I hadn't been able to find a book here in at Northwestern's library. So I just waited. I figured it could wait. And I had been in Paris a few weeks and was at the National Library, and I called up this book that was written in the 1970s by a man named Jean-Marie Fitter, which was simply a straightforward account of the case. And I remember spending, you know, uh, the better part of a day completely sucked into this book, to this story that uh, Fiter told. It was a book of popular history. There was no footnotes. It was very frustrating. There were no, there were no indication of the sources he'd used. Although I could tell he'd used some pretty serious sources. I could tell it was, it was, you know, it was well researched, but with absolutely no footnotes, no bibliography, nothing. And I also knew that this book had served as the basis for a movie made by uh, the filmmaker Claude Chabrol, who was part of the French New Wave in the 60s and 70s. Um, so that book, the Fiter book, the one I read, was was um, published in 1975. And so this was, you know, 30 years later, there I was in Paris reading this book, which was the only book about this case that I had been able to find. And it appeared from the book that this case had been huge, that people were really... Um, uh, uh, completely fascinated. In fact, the name was one that I had often heard. And I remember coming back that afternoon um, back home and, and to our apartment in Paris and talking to my husband and saying, wow, I just read this story. It's amazing. And I told him the whole story from beginning to end. And he looked at me and he said, it sounds like you're going to write a book about this case. And I said, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and so that it came about in, in the, the stupidest way. I said, there's only this book. It's, it's, it's you know, it, it's good as far as it goes, but it doesn't go into the context, and it, it's not written by a scholar, and it, there's been nothing since in 30 years. And so that's, that's, how I, that's how I got into it. It was very straightforward. Oh, I love um, it. Some of the more general questions, of course, I had about crime and the, mm -hmm. the particular forms of crime reporting in the 1920s and 30s found their way into a chapter of the book. So that broader context about crime is there in some form, mm -hmm. but it really was, you know, it was so much more fun to hang the whole inquiry about crime around this one story. So, right. Yeah. So what sources were particularly useful to you? Obviously, there wasn't that the book was good for getting the story, but if it didn't have footnotes, it would be difficult to track down all the information. How did you go about doing that? The information? Well, um, the first thing I found out was that, um, you, you know, there, there was a huge amount of reporting in the press. So that wasn't difficult. I was already working in the National Library in Paris, and um, I... Um, could call up all these newspapers and I knew when the case had happened. Um, there were a lot of newspapers, so it took a long time. And there was intense reporting over several months and then a hiatus and then intense reporting around the time of the trial. Mm -hmm. So there was a huge amount of, of 
uh, newspaper coverage. But of course, that did not give me direct access to, um, you know, to 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 the crime. It was mediated through the press. But what was particularly wonderful about the crime was the case records, and the case records turned out to be difficult to get access to as somebody who had worked on the 18th century uh, where, you know, you can look at anything, nobody, you know, any sources that you can find are fair game. And I quickly discovered that in France there is a hundred-year embargo on, on any kind of criminal records and you have to ask for a special dispensation to look at anything that is um, less than 100 years old. And, of course, you know, it was 2005, and my story had happened in 1933. Um, so you have to ask for something called a dérogation. And I held my breath for several weeks while waiting for this dérogation, which I got. So I was very happy about that. <laughs> but actually, that was the set of records uh, in the... Um, in the archives, the police archives of the the city of Paris, uh, the Assizes Court archives, but um, the police uh, re- uh, the police uh, uh, archives also existed. There was a separate archive that that had the police records, and um, that one I wasn't granted access to. It was very frustrating. I was there in the um, the director of the archives in her office, and she was sitting there with this big file on her desk, and she said, well, we've just made the decision that because there are descendants, blah, blah, you can't have access, and I'm staring at this file and, file and going crazy. Um, <laughs> the end of that, <laughs> thinking, can I just grab it and run, maybe, you know. Um, but the, the, the thing that no, actually, what happened was that subsequently the law was revised down to 75 years, so I got to see the police records several years later, and they turned out to be duplications of a lot of what I'd already seen. So oh, wow. turns out that my frustration was misplaced. <laughs> but anyway, the, um, the police records in this case are amazing. They are extremely abundant, and, and that was, you know, the I think I would have worked on it anyway, but the police records were the clincher because um, as... Uh, you know, if you've read the book, uh, there is everything from detailed descriptions and photos of the crime scene of the apartment where these people lived, of um, uh, there are uh, inquiries, there are, uh, you know, the, the transcripts of interviews with every single character in the case, sometimes um, um, sometimes more than once. There are detailed narratives of what happened by Violette and by her mother. And best of all, the, the most amazing thing that I've, that's in the records are uh, the uh, dozens and dozens of letters that were written by people all over France to the judge who was in charge of the case, telling him what they thought. So there's this extraordinary record of contemporary public opinion about the case mm-hmm. um, that I was able to use in, in one of my chapters. Like, I think the most moving thing was the, the letters that are in the case from uh, women who had been sexually abused as children. That's part of the case, of mm-hmm. course, um, uh, who, who wrote to the judge basically telling their stories and, and saying, you've got to believe her because listen to what happened to me. 
uh, and just holding those letters. There was one that was written by a peasant woman on um, basically on wrapping paper in pencil, barely grammatical, I mean, sort of phonetic uh, spelling, telling the story of what happened to her mm-hmm. as a child. So it was obviously this was a case that touched a nerve for a lot of people, and um, the letters in the in the uh, in the court case are are um, are, are kind of testimony to that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So people who don't know what the crime is are probably dying to know what it is right now. But first, I have one more question, because one of the many things that I found fascinating in the book was how really early on you make the distinction between a scandal and an affair. Can you explain to listeners what the difference in those two terms is and how that plays into this story? Oh, yes. Um, the, uh, the, this distinction was something I picked up from a very interesting book by a group of uh, French sociologists and anthropologists um, called, uh, the translation would be Affairs, Scandals, and, and Great Cases. And it, the, what they say, drawing on a lot of anthropological literature, what they, their definition is that a scandal is an event that happens in a society and that unites the society. Uh, and that causes people to sort of pull together and assert their common values so that um, uh, something that is perfectly heinous, um, you know, I think of, say, Bernie Madoff. That's a scandal because uh, when what he did came to light, um, it was obvious that there weren't two sides to the story. He he was a terrible person, and um, it was enlightening what happened, what he did, uh, and its consequences were enlightening, but they were an occasion, basically, anthropologists would say, for a society to articulate its values. Many of the cases, the great cases that um, that are prominent in people's uh, minds, are what the French call affaire, an affair. And those are cases that occur, they say, usually in more developed, more stable societies where there is um, a, a stable polity and a well-developed um, public uh, media. And what happens is that um, in their model, an affair begins as a scandal. Uh, somebody seems to be a villain and to have done something wrong, but then um, somebody emerges as that person's defender and turns the tables and shows that there is another side and that, in fact, the person who was supposedly the villain is, in fact, the victim. And then uh, the affair becomes something that divides a society. So the paradigmatic case there would be the Dreyfus case, where Captain Alfred Dreyfus in uh, 1894, I think it was, um, was uh, was arrested and convicted of being a traitor um, and uh, condemned sentence to hard labor on Devil's Island, and everybody thought he was, you know, the Bernie Madoff of the day, but then a group of defenders, uh, including prominently Emile Zola, uh, step up and say, no, in fact, he's wrongly accused and he's been framed and there have been cover-ups, and then another um, another side appears. And the most tragic of these affairs are the ones in which, you know, you have basically two sides 
and each side has its own logic. So in the Dreyfus case, of course, all of us today think, well, you know, we would be on the side of Cap- Captain Alfred Dreyfus, you know, the Jewish innocent guy who was framed. But, you know, the people who were uh, accusing him thought they were defending France and the honor of their country and um, and uh, the honor of the army. And so these incompatible moral imperatives clash in an affair. Um, and the other paradigmatic affair that I mention in the book is, is O.J. Simpson, because you, on the one hand, you have people for whom he is the, the villain who's perpetrated, you know, domestic violence and then domestic murder. On the other hand, on the other side, you have people for whom he is the victim of, of racism and a frame up and so on. So that's the distinction that, um, these, uh, scholars make, the, the scandal that unites a society versus, uh, the affair that divides a society and that more painfully allows for debate and discussion and um, it's 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 not a unifying thing like a scandal uh, and then the argument I make about this case is that actually uh, what's interesting about this case is that it wasn't really either one of those it had elements of both a scandal and an affair but it never settled into being one of those, and that was what was what is complicated and interesting about it. So let's talk about Violette a little bit. Can you tell us about her childhood and her relationship with her parents? Um, yes, she was a very ordinary little girl. I mean, the thing that is um, interesting about this case is that, um, and, and I think the reason why it had so much resonance is that what happened happened in the most ordinary family you could imagine. Um, the uh, family in question, there was uh, a, a, a three-person family, very small nuclear family. Um, Violette Nozier, who is the uh, protagonist, um, who is the daughter of um, a couple named Baptiste and Germaine Nozier, who lived in a um, very uh, nice working-class neighborhood, not not a um, poor or dangerous, but sort of kind of lower middle class, um, respectable neighborhood on the very eastern end of Paris. So part of Paris that most tourists nowadays never go to. I mean, it's a very uh, ordinary Paris neighborhood. And um, she was the daughter of a lower middle class, upper working class um, family who were well off for people of their sort. Her father was an engine driver, and that was a very good job. Uh, that he was, he was as a worker, he was privileged. Um, the sense that engine drivers for the railways had more stable jobs and made more money than. Um, other kinds of workers, and uh, her mother was a, uh, a housewife, stayed at home, which again was unusual at the time. Uh, most women in the working classes went out to work, so she was both. Uh, Violette was both from a very modest, very poor background, but at the same time she was privileged um, compared to other workers, and she was an only child. So um, I make a lot in the book of out of this kind of social ambiguity of the family. That is, um, they weren't really poor and they weren't really rich. So a lot of people could um, impose 
uh, meaning on the family, could, could project whatever they wanted. And that's why so many stories and so many framings happened, because um, this family was neither here nor there socially. So she was, um, she was a, a very um, kind of uh, privileged and spoiled. Her parents uh, doted on her. Um, a lot of people at this time in France had uh, a single child. It was very, very common. That was one of the first things I learned. I was talking to a friend who knew more about this period uh, than I did when I started the project. And I said they had one child, and my friend, who's a historian working on this period for a long time, she said, oh, that's completely typical. That kind of family between the wars and the French in general had very small families, and often only children. Uh, often a single child because it was a strategy for upward mobility. You could then um, ensure that that only child or the maybe your two children could have an excellent education and rise in the world. So uh, she was the little girl who was going to do well and continue the family's rise out of the working classes. I should add that um, Violette's parents, um, you know, they were lower middle class, upper working class, but they came from very poor backgrounds. I mean, that's their story, again, is typical of their time. Um, they both came from different areas in the French provinces, and her father came from an area in central France that was practically wild. I mean, people who, you know, very, very poor peasantry, uh, people who um, um, believed in witchcraft and didn't speak French and um, often starved through the winter. I mean, he came really from the back of beyond, and so becoming an engine driver was a first big jump in social mobility, and clearly that's where the family was headed. They were going to, with their child in whom they invested everything, they were going to um, uh, keep keep on um, climbing up the French uh, uh, social uh, ladder. And so they gave her, uh, they pushed her educationally. Uh, she went to primary school, then she went to what was called upper primary school, which is where you would stop your education usually at, in, in her social class. So she went to primary school till she was about 10, and then upper primary school for three years, and then she should have gone out into the workforce after that because upper primary school gave you the skills to become a, a saleswoman or a secretary, whatever. And her parents decided, no, we're going to, they were going to in, enroll her in secondary school. They're going to send her to the lycée, which is high school. And that was unusual. That was, um, uh, children of her social class did not go to secondary school. That was for the upper middle class. That was for what was called at the time the bourgeoisie, the children of the elite. So you already have a family that is going through a fairly drastic and abnormal process of social climbing, and that becomes central to the case. Um, you write that parents with girls to raise are usually concerned with formal education and sexual safety and propriety, and that those two things are always linked. What were the norms regarding this during Violette's time, and how did she conform to them or rebel against them? Ah, well, that's interesting. Um, uh, yeah, actually, uh, there were uh, some differences. I, I did quite quite a bit of work on um, 
be trying to reconstruct what the patterns of sexual behavior were for uh, girls at the time. And, um, well, obviously, um, norms of behavior were very strict in the upper classes and the upper middle classes. So, you know, we have a wonderful document about this that I held, that I used very heavily because it's something that it's both a wonderfully written and something that people recognize, which is the memoirs of Simone de Beauvoir, the first volume of her multi-volume autobiography, which is called Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter, is an extraordinary document about um, how strictly um, controlled girls were in uh, the upper middle classes and upper classes. So someone in Simone de Beauvoir's class, um, she never went out of the house on her own until she was 18 years old. She lived in the center of Paris, but she could not leave the house, leave the small apartment they lived in, because they actually they were upper class but not rich. She could not leave the apartment without somebody going with her, her mother or uh, the family maid or someone else, another adult. And, for instance, uh, in that social class, um, girls, until they got married, their mothers would always open and read their letters, both going in and going out. So if you wrote a letter to somebody, your mother would read it before sending it out, and so on. So you have these very strict norms in uh, the upper classes, which is extraordinary because, you know, you think it's the 20th century and you don't really, I don't think people don't quite realize how archaic it was. And it's still a time when, again, in Simone de Beauvoir's environment, uh, girls couldn't get married unless they had a dowry. You had to have money to, you know, put into the marriage and marriages were still semi-arranged. Uh, you couldn't get married without parents vetting the fiancé, making sure he was from a good family and so on. Um, so so, so you have that model. But then I discovered, um, somewhat to my surprise, that there were differences, but the same, there was a similar kind of pattern in the um, lower middle class and, and the respectable working classes, which was that girls were not supposed to have boyfriends until they really officially got engaged. And so I found autobiographies of several uh, women from the working classes. And, um, yeah, you could not have a boyfriend if you were under 18 or you weren't engaged to the boys. So the norm was you don't run around, you don't go out with boys um, uh, until you're of age to get married. And that is exactly what, and so Violette transgressed this norm. She started going out with boys, you know, having boyfriends, and um, in fact, uh, having sexual relations very quickly when she was about 15 or 16 years old. And this was quite shocking to people in her environment. There's a lot of testimony in the case record that people in the neighborhood knew about this. They were scandalized. Her parents found out um, about some of her boyfriends, and there were big um, there were uh, big scenes at home. And um, in fact, when uh, 
the last Christ family crisis before the murder actually happened, before the, the, the crime actually happened, involved their discovering letters from this young man she was seeing. And, you know, they start yelling and screaming at her and saying, who is this boy and what does he want? And you're going to write him a letter saying that he has to get in touch with your parents. So there's a lot of formality and very high standards of behavior in the working classes, too. And uh, Violette was somebody who completely flouted these uh, norms by uh, going out with boys and having, uh, as we know, we know from the case, she actually started sleeping with boys when she was about 16 or 17 years old, which here in her uh, environment was totally scandalous. And as we'll see, there is a reason probably why she was doing that. Mm-hmm. I think this kind of plays into that and also heightens the drama of their family melodrama as well, was that they were living in extremely close quarters, right? Their apartment was quite small. Oh, yes, absolutely. And in fact, that's that's one of the reasons why people had small uh, families in Paris at this time, uh, was there was a, a, a very severe housing shortage. Um, there had been a big population increase. Uh, in uh, Paris, well, they're constantly, people were constantly immigrating, as the Nozier themselves had done, and uh, rents were kept artificially low between the, the there were rents stabilized during the war, so uh, there was no incentive to build more housing because um, it was just landlords couldn't make much money from the rents, and so the housing stock was was. Uh, too small for the population. Everybody grew up in tiny apartments. Well, you know, if you go to Paris today, people still have tiny <laughs> apartments. Um, but, uh, you know, th- nowadays people will make an apartment out of uh, breaking through a wall and, and conjoining two apartments. It's quite an obsession in Paris, as it is in New York. But um, it, at the time, um, it was uh, the... Uh, the Nozier, again, were considered privileged because uh, they had more space than most people. They had exactly two rooms, two smallish rooms for the three of them. Um, so Violette did not have her own bedroom. Uh, the parents had a bedroom, the double bed, and then very close to the bedroom was the living-slash-dining room uh, in which there was a folding cot, and every night they... Uh, they uh, unfolded the cot and Violet slept in the dining room and then they folded it back up. And uh, in between the dining room and the, the uh, room, there was a tiny, very shabby uh, kitchen. It's more in, in the nature of a, a little hallway-type kitchen. And uh, they did have, they did not have a bathroom, but they had a toilet, and that was unusual. That was a luxury, having your own toilet as opposed to a communal toilet on the, in the hall uh, was considered um, uh, very something, something uh, desirable and fairly rare. And so, um, uh, look at everybody else, they... they at the time in Paris, I mean, again, I wrote, read as much, I read as many um, uh, souvenirs and memoirs as I could, and everybody talks about, uh, even Simone de Beauvoir's family, about you know all these collapsing beds and screens that people put up, put up for privacy. That uh, you know the notion that each person would have a separate room was completely unknown, um, and uh, so 
it did make for a kind of hothouse atmosphere. Again, it's very interesting because you have Simone de Beauvoir's memoirs in which she complains bitterly about the lack of privacy, the fact that she could not find some place, because even though her family was upper class, they had the same housing problem. And she, there was no place where she could f- have any privacy and read and, and daydream and, you know, escape her mother. Uh, she's completely trapped. And the same thing for the Nozière. You know, when things went wrong in the family, there was just no place you could go. And nowadays, of course, in Paris, you have small apartments, and if you're getting on each other's nerves, you can just go out to a cafe. But um, back then, of course, since girls were not allowed out, uh, without parental supervision, they were trapped. You know, you would have a fight with your parents, and there you were in these two tiny rooms with nowhere to go because you weren't allowed to go out. So um, a lot of their their physical surroundings, which again are uh, depicted very... We have uh, photos, so we, we have a sense of this apartment um, from uh, the crime records. Um, so that environment contributed I'm sure, to what happened to the family dynamic and to what happened. So can you walk us through her crime a little bit? Yes. Well, um, what happened was that, um, well, maybe I should talk a little bit before that about um, her fantasy life. Of course. Because that feeds into the crime. So so I mentioned that Violette was was, uh, having problems uh, with her parents because she uh, was, uh, you know, she was known to have boyfriends. She was also failing at school, so they enrolled her in this fancy school, and she was cutting classes. And uh, she cut classes to hang out with students. The the fancy lycée they sent her to was in the Latin Quarter in the center of Paris, where, of course, a lot of students um, hung out. And uh, was center of center of uh, student life in Paris, and she uh, was supposed to be going to school, but in fact uh, she would not go to school, and she started making friends with young students in the cafes in the Latin Quarter, and of course the young men who went to university were mostly upper class because you know if secondary school was exclusive you can imagine the university was even more exclusive these were all the children of the elite and so she developed a fantasy life in which um she uh, or a set of of lies about herself where she told people she met in the center of paris that she was um the daughter of an engineer her father was an engineer for the railways, and her mother was a fashion designer working for a leading uh, fashion house in Paris. And what's interesting is that these lies were rooted in reality. So she took her father's position as an engine driver and made him instead you know, one of the bosses in the railways. And her mother used to sew clothes for her, and um, she transformed that into my mother is a top designer for Fashion House. And so she passed herself off as a uh, an upper-class girl. Um, and she, in fact, was able to play the part because she uh, was able to... This was the first generation in which uh, somebody from a modest background 
could pass as being upper class because it's the first generation in Paris of people who have access to ready-to-wear clothes and um, uh, off-the-rack uh, clothes and um, to the the, um, uh, the 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 department stores like the Galerie Lafayette and the Printemps, the big de- Paris department stores. So um, I'm emphasizing this because there's a way in which. Um, she was wishing her parents away before she acted on on it. Um, so she 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 was on the one hand she was fantasizing about being somebody different, about being of a different social class, and in fact she was acting out her parents' fantasies because they were the ones who had been pushing her educationally. And even though she'd rebelled against the education, she'd still somehow absorbed their dreams of social mobility. And um, she also, at the time, uh, so so this is after a series of, of conflicts and fights with her parents, she um, uh, was at a stage in her life where she met a young man whose name was Jean Dabin, who was a law student, and fell in love with him. And somehow this triggered, I think, a desire to be rid of her parents that somehow feeling that she had this connection with this young man impelled her to act on it. So her crime is, um, it's both not sensational in the sense that it's not a big, bloody, violent mess, but it is quite startling. So um, she, uh, one day um, after the umpteenth fight with her parents, goes to a pharmacy in Paris and purchases uh, several tubes of a very powerful barbiturate that you could get over the counter and that was um, that was uh, used as, as a kind of a sleeping pills, uh, as, as, uh, as a sleep med- medication. And um, she made up three different little packages um, with different markings on them. And uh, she went home, so this is in late August of 1933, August 21st of 1933, a very hot day in late summer when a lot of people are on vacation in Paris. In fact, her boyfriend's away on vacation. And um, she was the person, she was being treated for various illnesses, among them, in fact, syphilis, uh, allegedly, possibly syphilis. So she had been in touch with this doctor, uh, who was a very um, uh, upper-class uh, doctor who her parents hadn't really met but were intimidated by because he was an upper-class man. So Violette forged a letter, actually, from this doctor to her parents, saying that because they had suffered various ailments, um, he was uh, recommending this medication for them, and um, that uh, he had entrusted it to Violette and they should take this medication. So she actually sat down at the family dining table with her parents and told them each, gave them each a, um, a packet of powder, showed them the letter from the doctor and said, um, I'm going to mix this powder into this glass of water and now uh, mom and dad, would you please drink up? And they drank, and they both collapsed. Um, her father first collapsed uh, on the uh, folding cot that was her bed in the dining room where they'd been sitting. 
And her mother uh, then dragged herself into the bedroom and onto the bed and uh, fell unconscious. And uh, Violette waited in the apartment. God knows what she must have been thinking. And she waited a couple of hours. Then she took the money she found in the apartment and she crept down uh, the stairs of the apartment building. They lived on the top floor, on the sixth floor, and wandered around Paris for most of the night, booked herself into a hotel. And then um, she, the next day she woke up in this hotel in Paris, in the Latin Quarter, which she knew quite well, and sent a telegram home saying, Mom and Dad... Uh, I won't won't be home for dinner. I'll be back late, so don't wait for me. Sends his telegram. And then she spent the day basically shopping and partying. She went to the Galerie Lafayette. She bought herself a whole new set of glamorous clothes, some evening clothes. Um, She came back to the hotel. She changed. She had contacted her best friend, a young woman named Madeleine de Bees, and they went out and hung around in a cafe and met some young men and went drinking with these young men. And one of the young men um, uh, offered Violette a ride home. So she got home. So this was then the next night and then early the following morning of the next night. So it was about 1 a.m. And she crept upstairs. She uh, went into the apartment, saw the unconscious bodies of her parents. She had left them unconscious. She found them both sprawled out. And um, she uh, turned on the gas main in the kitchen and went and stood in the uh, hallway. And after there was a powerful uh, smell, she um, hammered on the uh, door of the next door neighbor and screamed and said, come and see, please come and help me. I think my parents have committed suicide. And so um, the neighbors and then the police arrived to find the bodies of both of her parents. So that's the beginning of the crime. That's what happened. So why? Mm -hmm. Why had she done this, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That was my next question. So why had she done this? Well, everybody thought they knew why she'd done this, which was that um, her parents, uh, being a kind of model family, pursuing a absolutely model path of upward social mobility, and, you know, they, they lived very modestly. They never spent money. So they had savings. They had um, considerable savings for people of that class. You know, in today's money, they might have saved um, something like $100,000, quite a bit. And um, so the story made sense to everybody. They said, okay, here is this girl. She is vain. She sleeps around. She's, they called her vicious. She's vicious, which in fact meant sexually depraved. And so there's this narrative immediately of her as the, the, you know, the total villain. It's a scandal. So that's why it starts as a scandal. She's Bernie Madoff. She's Dominique Strauss-Kahn. She's the person who, you know, you can't find an excuse for. Um, she's vain. She's sexually dissolute. 
Her parents are model people. They have given her everything. They have sacrificed themselves. They are perfect. And what does she do in return? She poisons them. Why? Because she wants to, as, as the paper said, she wants to live her life. Um, and uh, she wants to have fun. She wants to party. She wants to inherit their money, spend their money, and be the selfish, um, ungrateful villain that everybody is painting her as at the time. So everybody agrees that's why she did it. But then there's a bombshell. Uh, and the bombshell happens after a rather extraordinary episode in which Violette actually escaped the police. She just walked out. They weren't, you know, they were not watching her carefully. They never thought she'd have the nerve to do this. She just walked out into the street and disappeared into Paris and hid in plain sight for about a week. And they finally then they arrest her after there's been this this kind of hunt for her throughout the city and she's been um, staying with various former lovers and in hotels and so on. So everybody's in a frenzy of excitement. They, they finally, the police find her, they arrest her, and they bring her into the police station and this um, actually rather compassionate um, police commissioner uh, first starts interrogating her and she and says, you you know, uh, why did you do it? Now, I, sh- I should explain that um, she was in very she would she 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 was in in deep trouble for various reasons, including the fact that um, her father died, but her mother didn't die. Her mother survived. Her mother recovered, and uh, of course, the first thing she did, the mother did, was to uh, tell the police what had happened. That you know what her daughter had done. She made no effort to conceal it. She was furious at her daughter. She was distraught. She said, then she explained exactly what had happened. So this police commissioner says, well, why did you do it? Uh, why did you want to kill your parents? And Gillette reacts very vehemently and says, well, I didn't want to kill both of my parents. I gave my mother less. I just wanted to make her unconscious so she wouldn't intervene. I wanted to kill my father. He had been forcing me to have sex with him uh, for the last six years since I since the age of twelve. And that's why I did it, and um, and she was uh, she was completely uh, straightforward, unwavering. Uh, she said nobody helped me. I did this on my own. I wanted to do it because it was the only way I could get free of him. And um, this makes the newspapers the next day and everybody is up in arms, you know, with initially everybody saying she has just compounded her crime. Not only did she kill her father, now she makes, as they say, this odious accusation. Um, She is making things worse. She's just defending herself by murdering. She Not only did she murder her father, she murdered the memory of her father. She's trying to murder the memory of a good man. So um, that was so. Then you have um, her version versus everybody else's version, which is she did it for the money, and now she's lying. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the that's the setup. So why did she really do it? That's you know what the book tries to figure out. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're running out of time, so everyone will just have to read the book to find out. It's such a good book. I really, really enjoyed it. 
Um, so thank you so much for talking with us today about this. Uh, any idea who you'll be writing about next? Um, well, um, I'm writing uh, one general book uh, that is an introduction to historical studies for students. So it's called Thinking About History. And then I'm going to continue working on this period, and I have another project called uh, Rules of the Game that is uh, also a kind of a, a broader exploration of uh, rules of sex and social class in Paris based on uh, an extraordinary um, uh, trove of, of autobiographies that I found that are kept in the center near Lyon. So I'm going to be exploring some of the same themes of sex and class but in a much larger context uh, through a, a, a much larger population. So those are my projects. I've been talking today with Sarah Maza about Violette Nausier, a story of murder in 1930s Paris, her new book, which is now out in paperback. I'm Online Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening. <laughs>